I bring you greetings from your family, your every nation family, across southern Africa, specifically from Johannesburg and more specifically from every nation Rosebank. That is where I am. And uh, about to hand over, Nick and I are about to hand over the church to Simon and Lindy Larafolo. I don't know if you know that, which is a very exciting moment. So we thank the Lord for that. As we go into the word, before we go into the word, I want to give you just a, a taste of what is happening across the region, across the nation. And I'm going to do it in a slightly different way. I want to get somebody who's just led an Every Nation mission team. And uh, it was from one of our Every Nation churches in Stellenbosch to Every Nation Worcester. And it happens to be my son, but he led that team. So I'm going to ask James. I've got my other son here. James, why don't you come up? And just uh, share with the people what, what the Lord did. Thank you. All right. Hello. Good morning, family. Um, also, greetings from, from Every Nation Rosebank. That's, that's where I was raised and had foundations laid. Greetings from Every Nation Stellenbosch, where I've been equipped and have done university. And, and greetings from Every Nation Worcester, which, which has inspired me many times over the last few years. So, as, as my dad mentioned, Sean and I were on local missions, Every Nation local missions. It's 100 students. Um, twice a year, going out to three local communities and then three or four local communities. We had Devon Valley, which was schools ministry, Jamestown, which was evangelism on the street, and, and high school and primary school. And then I was in Worcester with the Every Nation Worcester Church on a church support mission. And wow, wow, wow. Um, it was a small team, 11 people, pretty much no off time. We were in schools. We had kids ministry, youth ministry, community ministry, business ministry. One of the things that I learned in this mission is that as Christians, we are called to knock on doors that look closed. We, um, Come on. we went to an auditing firm and had 50 minutes there of, of preaching the gospel and sharing testimonies and putting auditors and accountants into small groups um, <laughs> and getting them to pray for each other and, and make plans. How do we keep this going? We got to go to multiple businesses, aluminum factory, clothing factory, went to the local government clinic. We got to go to the social responsibility project that the Worcester Church is running, a soup kitchen twice in one of the most dangerous areas in Worcester with little kids running around saying, Oh, my, my uncle was shot here two weeks ago, and this person over here. Hectic, hectic stuff, but God is on the move. Um, one of the most amazing things, though, is Every Nation has got a, a powerful youth. We, we got to interact with them quite a few times, Every Nation Booster there. Their youth meetings are, are very different from what I remember of youth meetings. They, um, they get together and they share testimonies. They've got worship, testimonies, and small groups, and that's what they do as 14 to 16-year-olds. Um, but there's this one school which they haven't been able to break into yet. They've got no one from Droste, which is one of the top schools in Worcester. It's been closed, closed, closed. And we got in contact with, with someone that's working there. And he came to us on the Monday and he said, I don't know what you're lacing your prayers with, but the ground has shattered open. The school said to us, it's a boarding school, 500 boarders, 900 students in total. And they said, on the Monday night, come in. You can run a worship evening for an hour for anyone that wants to come. And on the Tuesday, you've got an hour in each of the hostels. Everything, every single hostel, you've got an hour to do whatever you want. And we got to... It was... And then they got us involved in their grade 10 camp and, and, and on and on and on. And it was, it was such an awesome reminder of, of two things again for me. The one was that as Christians, we called to knock on doors that look closed. 
when we're doing street evangelism, we walk into a Muslim carpet store, and this is the place. <laughs> this is where we're going, and, and it was amazing. They didn't get saved, but they're going to get saved. It was, there was favor, and there was freedom in that place. Um, and the second thing that, that was just an awesome reminder was every single one of us are ministers. It, it was amazing for me. It's a small team, 11 people. But it was so, it so blessed my heart as a team leader that I could say, every single person here is a minister. And I could send two people to the government clinic and two people to the aluminium factory and know that I could trust them to stand up and preach and share and testify. And this is 20 to 24-year-olds. This is, this is who we're meant to be. This is who we're called to be. We are ministers and we're called to knock on doors that, that look closed, but God is opening. I just want to honor your leaders for receiving us, for receiving this, what do we call it now? Ow. Oi. For receiving oi. It's going to be ow for the devil, but it's going to be oi for God. <laughs> Thank you for receiving oi. Thank you for receiving all of us. Wayne and Trish, Claire and Malcolm and Linda and Eloise and just all your leaders here. You've got an amazing team of men and women here. And I just want to start by honoring them and And I want to pray. Father, thank you for your word, which transforms. Thank you for your gospel, Lord God, which changes everything. And I pray, Father, that you just open up our hearts, open up our minds, Lord God, to see anew. Lord, to see afresh, Lord God, what you intend, Lord God, for our lives, for our families, for our careers. Lord God, for this church, for the city, and for South Africa. Lord, quicken us, Lord God. Grace me, grace us all, Lord God, to hear, me to deliver, and all of us to hear, and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One more greeting I bring is from my wife. Uh, She would have been with us, but she's up in Joburg, just being there for um, my mother-in-law, who we're going to send that greeting to. Amen. (laughs) Can we transition, please? Thank you so much. I want to tell you about one of the greatest case studies to me of the gospel changing everything. And that's really the title today, that the gospel changes everything. It happened in the Pacific Islands when a crew rebelled against the captain. It's quite well known, and a number of movies were made called The Mutiny on the Bounty. The story that isn't told is the power of the gospel. These men mutinied, they threw the captain and the officers onto a ship, onto a small ship, and they sailed away. And they took the local woman with them, and they took some of the local men, and they found an island, the Pitcairn Island. And one of my mother's, um, my late mother's closest friends is actually descended from these people. And they found this beautiful island, a lot of food, a lot of water, no people whatsoever. Now, this crew, they were rebellious, they were drunken, they were full of lust and all kinds of stuff. And they settled on this island, thinking that they had found paradise on earth, which they had. The problem was them. And over the course of four years, three quarters of the men were murdered. They were murdering each other. The woman lived in fear, and the woman endured all kinds of terrible things from these men. Eventually, one man was left, last man standing. 
And he was rejected by the women and children, and he was living on the other side of the island. His name was Alexander Smith. There'd been jealousies, there'd been rage, there'd been all kinds of terrible things. And now he was exiled to the far corner of the island. And all he had was the ship's Bible and the ship's common book of prayer. He was a hardened man. He was a murderer and a rapist. And he started to read this book, this gospel of Jesus Christ. And he changed. And he radically changed. And at first, some of the children came and interacted with them and then told their mothers, come and see. And they didn't believe it. But eventually, they saw the profound change that had come about due to this man. He started to lead prayer meetings. Eventually, the whole island, which all descended from from these terrible men and these women that they had taken, the whole island got saved. And paradise truly became paradise as they worshipped God and lived on this paradise island. 26 years from when they first landed on this island, British ships landed. They'd been looking for any survivors of this rebellion. They were under orders to execute straight away any people that they found who'd been, mutiny, who'd been mutineers. When they found this man who these women and children called father, when they found this man in this beautiful surroundings of gospel-centered, Christ-glorifying community, that had changed from a hell on earth to a paradise on earth, they said, we can't do it. <laughs> we can't execute him. And they left him and his family and this extended family. A number of years later, another ship came under the same duty. They said, we can't do it as well. Today, the Pitcairn Island community is known for being lovers of Jesus Christ. Got a prison where there are no people in. <laughs> this is the power of the gospel. The gospel that transforms, the gospel that changes everything. That's a picture of my family, which I've mentioned to you already. My beautiful wife, Nicola, of uh, 25 years now, and uh, James and Sean. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to John 1. This is the grand opening of the gospel of John. And we pick up in John 1, verse 17. And it says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Moses, the most humble of all men. How do we know? Because he wrote the book and he told us that he was the most humble of all men. (laughs) It's going to be quite a guy. (laughs) Moses who was the friend of God, Moses, who was the man who dwelt in God's presence, who said, if your presence doesn't go with us, we're not going to go. Moses is used by God to bring the law. And the law is perfect in telling us how to live. The law teaches us how to live. If there was a community, this Pitcairn Island community had, had been able to live just by the law, they would have lived in paradise. The law also teaches us that we are sinners. And the law also teaches us that we desperately need a savior. So my question to you. There we go. Have you ever broken any of these commandments? Have you ever broken, you shall have no gods before me or shall make no idols? Has it always been that only God has captured your heart? 
maybe there's one or two who can say that. Third one, you shall not take the name of the Lord your, your God in vain. Four, keep the Sabbath day holy. You know the Sabbath day is Saturday, it's not Sunday, by the way. So I don't think any of us have kept the Sabbath day holy. And we understand Jesus is now our Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. That's time, that's money, that's anything. You shall not lie, ever, even to your mother. <laughs> you shall not covet another man's wife. You're not, you shall not look at a woman lustfully. There's not one person who can say that they have not broken the Ten Commandments. Not one person. Never mind the Ten Commandments. When we talk about the law, according to Jewish tradition, depends on how you count them, given in Deuteronomy, given in Leviticus, because there are 613 commands. If you want to rely upon the law, you have to have kept every one of those and not broken one. And this is the reality. The law is perfect. If we can live by the law, it would be amazing. But because of our nature, we're like a bowling ball. Anybody ever gone bowling? And you throw the ball, and it doesn't matter how you throw it, it always pulls to the left. <laughs> Just pulls to the left and gets into the gutter. Little children don't need to be trained how to be naughty. It just comes out of them. <laughs> okay. There is a fallenness to humanity. And even knowing what is right doesn't give us the power to do what is right. And the law, which is perfect, given by Moses, is not enough. And then Jesus comes with grace. And Jesus comes with truth. And he comes and does what we need, what needed to be done. And he brings salvation. And we're going to look today at how this gospel, this good news that Jesus has come and paid the price for our sins, how it impacts and how it changes everything. You might have seen a, an image like this. Tertullian, early church father, he talks about how the gospel is ever standing between the two thieves. Two thieves. And the one is moralism or religion. And the other one is relativism or irreligion. And standing right in the center is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grace and truth brought to you by Jesus. What is moralism? Moralism is man's efforts to be righteous. And you know what happens? Either you become prideful and you fall into self-deception that you actually can stand before God because of what you've done, because you're such a good person. Or what sometimes happens is you just become broken because you just realize you cannot stand up in your own righteousness. You've tried, but you're just aware of the sin that weighs so heavily upon you. And so self-hatred develops. That's what happens when you're following religion, when you're following moralism, and you're not living in grace and truth. On the other hand, it's relativism. This is the other thief. This is the other ditch that you can fall into. And this is where you give little thought to your life. You give little care. And you don't believe in truth. And everything is, well, that's true for you. That's not true for me. Jesus comes with grace for the moralists and for those who are in religion. And he comes with truth for the relativists. 
so often we try to cover ourselves with a modern-day fig leaf. Adam covered himself. We try to cover ourselves with our own righteousness or our own deception that there is no right, there is no wrong. Now imagine a church that was low in truth and low in grace. In other words, there wasn't much forgiveness and there was very little church. Well, we call that a cult. And there's a lot of them around today, sadly. A church that is high in grace but low in truth is, becomes a very permissive and a very worldly church. God will just keep forgiving you, you know, stay living with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, you know, just, just the love of God. You don't even have to get saved. You are all saved. A permissive church with no truth in it. A church with low grace but high truth becomes judgmental and becomes a graceless church. But a church that receives the gospel as Jesus came with grace and truth becomes a life-giving church. A church that is full of truth and full of grace is a gospel-centered church. May we be those kind of churches. Now, when we say the gospel changes everything, we need to understand this. It starts on the inside. The mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, grows into a massive tree. The gospel begins with that internal transformation as we believe, as we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And as we believe and believe more, the gospel transforms us and we become the men and the women that we're meant to, meant to be. And we do those things that God has called us to be. The gospel is not the ABCs. It's not like you just learn it and then you move on to more advanced stuff. The gospel is the A, and I'll use American accent, it's the A through to Z. It's not the ABC, it's the A through to Z. It's the whole thing. It's not really true to say, you know, you believe the gospel, you get saved, and then for the rest of your life, you try to live a good life. That's not really true. What's really true is you believe the gospel, and by comprehending it, by receiving it, by trusting in it, by trusting in Jesus and allowing him to come into your heart, you are transformed and you grow into maturity. The promise of Jesus in Revelations 21 is, Behold, I make all things new. He wants to touch every era of society. He wants to touch every era of family. He wants to touch every era of our heart. The gospel changes everything. And let's consider this. The gospel, because of Jesus' incarnation, is upside down. And I just want to give credit to two authors. I should have done this at the beginning. The one is Tim Keller's Center Church. And the other one is, what if Jesus was never born? So if you want to do some research, they're great books, which I've got a lot of this stuff from. Jesus came in the flesh. He was rich and he became poor on our behalf. And he went on to say, the first shall be last. Because Jesus stripped himself of his glory and became poor, became carnate in the flesh. It changes the way we see leadership. It changes the way we see service. It changes the way we see serving because Jesus came and he served. It deals with our pride. It deals with our arrogance. It changes us from the inside out. Secondly, because of his atonement, 
It's not about us doing good deeds. It's not about externals. It's not about eating and drinking. Yes, I mean, don't get drunk. But it's not about the outward form. But it's about the renewed heart. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Unlike all the other religions that say, do, 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 the gospel says done. And it's about a change that happens in our heart as we trust in him. And because of the resurrection, there's a forward and back tension. Philippians 1 verse 21. To live is Christ and to die is gain. No longer are we saying, I'm living on earth, whoever dies with the most money wins. We are living in a life in such a way that we are living for eternity. We are living to the glory of God. I want to hear those words one day. Well done, good and faithful servant. Don't you want to hear that? We have to live with eternity in mind. We have to live this upside-down life of being willing to be a servant. We have to live this inside-out life of understanding first and foremost our heart and where our heart is. And from that flows a good life. From that flows evangelism. From that flows all these wonderful things which we should do, which we should want to do. But it starts on the inside. The gospel changes all these things. The gospel changes all these areas. It changes sexuality. And if, if we go back to those two thieves on the cross, if you're a moralist, you see sexuality as maybe something that's a bit dirty. Maybe sexuality is a little bit dangerous. If you're a relativist, you see sexuality as just an appetite. You know, like you go to the buffet. Well, I'll have that and this is what I feel like. But if we've got a gospel-centered perspective on sexuality, then we understand that Jesus gave his all to us. He held nothing back. And so, too, if we are going to be involved sexually with somebody, we should give our all. Our person, give ourselves legally, socially, in other words, it's before family, give ourselves personally in a committed, permanent relationship. The gospel changes the way we see sexuality. The gospel changes the way we see family. If you're a moralist, then you're constantly a slave to obeying your family. If you're a relativist, then you see no need to honor your family whatsoever. But the gospel frees us from needing approval from our father and mother because we are living to please our heavenly father. At the same time, we're not in animosity, but we know how to honor our father and mother. As far as self-control is concerned, the moralist lives in fear of punishment. The relativist doesn't see self-control as an issue, but sees it just as a way to express him or herself. But with the gospel, Titus 2 talks about how that the grace of God has come. That teaches us to say no to sin. And yes to him. Grace comes that brings us forgiveness. No longer are we under the condemnation and the burden of sin and judgment and condemnation. But it doesn't stay there. We are given power to say no and to overcome. As far as race and culture is concerned, the moralist judges or idolizes, judges other cultures, 
idolizes his own, maybe others. The relativist looks at all cultures from a relative perspective. The gospel says the following, that you should be somewhat critical of your own culture. And you should be somewhat critical of every other culture. Because every culture is dynamic. You know what that means? It's changing. Every culture uniquely reflects God in some way or multiple ways. And yet every culture is flawed and in need of redemption. So what is our perspective when it comes to culture? We're not immigrants and not anti-immigrants. We are all foreigners on a journey. We're not immigrants in the sense of we're trying to be absorbed by culture. And we're not tourists. I happen to be a tourist in your beautiful city at the moment. But, uh, <laughs> you know, the tourists, they come in, they eat the ice cream, you know, they walk along the beach, and then they go home, you know. It's like very surface. When it comes to our engagement with culture, we are not immigrants being subsumed by the culture of the day. And we're not tourists just skimming along the surface. The perspective that we should carry is that we are ambassadors. You know what an ambassador does? He comes into a culture, he learns to speak the language, learns to relate, learns to engage, learns to understand the needs, the the issues of that particular culture, but always remembers that he's got a king back home and that he's from a different country. We are called to engage culture. We are called to come into culture and really understand it. But for what purpose? To represent the king as an ambassador. That is the perspective on culture. When it comes to human authority, the moralist says, I obey as a good person because I'm a good person, I obey. The relativist either says, I don't need to obey, or they might obey too much just to give them a sense of identity. But if you've got a gospel-changed heart, you obey the law from the heart, even when nobody can catch you. Because you've been changed from the inside out. And even then, there are certain times when as gospel-centered people, we don't obey the law of the land. If they tell you to stop evangelizing, what are we going to do? Keep evangelizing. There are certain things that we're not going to obey the law of the land in. But where we can, we will. And we'll obey it from the heart. And guilt and self-image, I've touched on already. But let me just ask you this question. Have you ever said this? I can't forgive myself. Don't lift up your hand. (laughs) Have you ever said that? I just can't forgive myself. You know what you're doing at that particular point in time? You're putting yourself above God. Because you're making your pride, your ego, what you think about yourself, more important than what God thinks about you. God has loved you so much that he sent his son and paid the full price. And if he is willing to forgive you, if he has paid the price for your forgiveness, what right do you have to say, I can't forgive myself? Gospel changes everything. The gospel changes every area of society. The great Abraham Kaper, who was an editor of a newspaper, he was a gospel minister, he was a prime minister, he said the following, There's not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, 
who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine or mine. In other words, the things that I've spoken of, of the heart and of the way we think and the way we, we live, maybe on a personal level. But the gospel, grasping the fullness of the gospel, means we are meant to change and bring the good news of grace and truth into every sphere of society. Art, entertainment, business, education, family, every single area. And I'm going to just touch on a few of these. And uh, the book, What If Jesus Was Never Born, really goes into a lot of detail on this. Sorry, I don't have my batteries down. Thank you. The gospel has changed the way the world looks at humanity. Because of this gospel principle of the sanctity of life. You know, sanctity comes from the word sacredness of life. If you study church history, the way women and children were treated in almost every single society until the gospel changed, you'll be so glad, like Charles Darwin even was. There's an editorial about Charles Darwin was written in the 19th century when there was a whole lot of criticism about missionaries going to other countries. And Charles Darwin writes, he says, you know what, if I was to land on a shore of a foreign land, I would pray that the gospel had got there, because then I'm likely to be shown Christian kindness. Genesis 1 verse 27, because of this revelation, this gospel revelation that we've been created in his image, it has changed the world in terms of children, women, elderly, and slaves. A Hindu woman once approached Charles Spurgeon and said this to him, Surely your Bible was written by a woman. Surely your Bible was written by a woman. And he said, why? Why do you say that? He says, because your Bible is so kind to women. Prior to the gospel coming, in so many cultures, so many civilizations, killing of babies... Leaving a baby outside was very common. Treating women just as property was very common. We, in uh, every nation, Rosebank, we've got a ministry called Baby Haven. And that's the little image there, that, uh, that yellow bucket. Um, we've, through that ministry, and we give all glory to God through this, have uh, seen 200 children Found their forever families. 200 children adopted. And uh, the tragedy of it is, we make up last year 20% of all adoptions in South Africa. And there is a desperate need for us, as the hands and feet of Jesus, of just adopting children. Um, every single child that gets adopted, I'm just, I'm over the moon. When the gospel comes into our hearts, it changes the way we see people, and it changes how we act, and it ch changes us in terms of compassion and mercy. Secondly, the gospel changes everything in terms of education. Whoopsie. We both changed it there. Thank you. If you study the history of education, the biggest impetus across the world came about through missionaries came about through men and women who wanted the good news, the gospel, to get to people. The codifying of languages, 
the printing, the printing press, Gutenberg, the printing press, said, I wish to print the Bible. It was a gospel-centered impetus. What became the model of universities of Oxford, Paris, Bologna, what became the model came from these early Christian universities whose primary purpose was to raise up theologians. Calvin, the academy, developed an even more refined model of many of the universities that we have today. And Christians over the last 200 years have brought literacy to literally hundreds of millions. Am I saying missionaries have made mistakes? Yes, I am, and I'll acknowledge some of the mistakes of the church in a moment. But the advance of education has come through the gospel, because the gospel changes everything. Next slide, please. The impact on science. So many people think that science and the gospel are at odds. Do not believe everything that Richard Dawkins writes. In fact, don't believe anything that he writes. A gospel-centered, a biblically-centered worldview says the following, that we are called to have dominion over this world. To search out the matters, to search out a matter is the glory of kings. Some of the scientists of the current era say if we had the postmodern perspective 200 years ago, science wouldn't have developed the way it developed today because there was a perspective of there are truths and they are there to be uncovered. Robert Oppenheimer, who was behind the America's atomic bomb um, in World War II, he said, Christianity is the mother of science because of the insistence on the rationality of God. The Royal Society, society dedicated to science, was established by Puritan Christians. And let me just show you, for example, of entire branches of science that were discovered by Christians. So these were gospel-believing men and women. Antiseptic surgery, Lister. Bacteriology, Pasteur. Calculus, Newton. Chemistry, Boyle. Electronics, Fleming. Electromagnetics, Faraday. Energetics, Calvin. Gynecology, Simpson. Gas dynamics, Boyle. And on and on and on it goes. The gospel changes everything. And if you're a scientist, if you're interested in technology, you're following in the footsteps of many great men and many great women who have loved Jesus and have done the same. The gospel changes the way we see work and free enterprise, and it changes our work ethic. Max Weber did a sociological study on people in northern Europe and people in southern Europe, and he determined that the difference wasn't the difference in resources, but it was that a gospel Protestant work ethic had come into the people. And that was the cause of the prosperity of the people. And the Puritan said the following, that wealth was a sign of God's blessing and a fruit of labor in their calling. In the Middle Ages, in the Dark Ages, to be poor was considered to be virtuous. Can you believe that? I know that the church has swung the other way now. You know, Now if you're rich, only if you're rich are you virtuous. I don't believe either one is true. But I do believe the following, that there is a fruit that comes from labor. So there are ungodly people who are wealthy, and there are godly people who don't have a lot. But what I do believe is that there are biblical principles, that as you labor hard, fruitfulness comes. And and this is a gospel perspective, which we see throughout the world today. The father of accounting, don't know if you know this, I studied accounting. Anybody 
Any chartered accountants here? Ooh, okay. <laughs> I'm so sorry for you. But the father of accounting <laughs> was Luca Pacchioli. He was a God-fearing man. This is the truth, friends. Great growth in wealth followed wherever the gospel was preached and wherever the gospel was received. Do the studies. Take a look at it. Study history. Don't just believe the propaganda. The gospel brings wealth. Healing the sick. The Council of Nicaea said the following. Wherever a cathedral is established, establish a hospital. And it was Christians who saw from the very beginning that as God had touched their hearts, as God had touched their lives, they had a duty to be charitable. They had a duty to express the love of God to those who are less wealthy than them. And there's so many organizations from Florence Nightingale to all these today, the Samaritan's Purse, World Vision. I know many of the secular organizations get, get the best publicity, but it is the Christian organizations, be it in the orphan care area, be it in crisis interventions that are really touching the world. The gospel changes everything. Inspiring art. The gospel does not suppress art, but it encourages it. Whether it's architecture, literature, all said we're doing this to the glory of God. Bach, Michelangelo, Raphael, Da Vinci, or more recently, we will worship. (laughs) Thought you'd appreciate that a bit more then. (laughs) Sorry for some of the Eurocentric examples. Okay. Let me acknowledge the sins of the church. Yes, there were the Crusades. There's a massive difference, however, between Christianity and Christendom. When people have done the terrible things that they've done, it's contrary to the gospel. It's contrary to what the word of God says in terms of Jesus coming with grace and truth. When they did the inquisitions, when televangelists have done terrible things, it's not in line with what the gospel says, unlike other belief systems. The question is, what happens when Christian restraints are removed? What happens when the gospel is not in a particular culture? Atheism, moral relativism, devaluing of life, hundreds of millions of people killed, and great cynicism comes about. I'm concerned about Europe at the moment. I think we need to send more missionaries to Europe. I think it's time that Africa starts sending to those places um, because I see the life and I see the glory of God here, this church, and in Durban and in South Africa. And there are some places that are going very dark without the gospel. Friends, as I conclude... The gospel changes everything. I've tried to give a, a big topic in a short amount of time. It's got to start with our lives, though. It's got to be personal. It's got to start with us saying, Jesus, come in to every area of my heart and life. My family my sexuality, my work ethic, come into the way I wake up in the morning, 
Come into the way I forgive people. Come into the way I receive forgiveness. I just want to take a moment of, of re-consecration. Can, can we bow our heads together, please? Heavenly Father, we, we are so grateful that you sent Jesus. We could never, we can never fulfill the requirements of the law. But Jesus, you came with this amazing good news that, that we are loved by the Father despite our sins. And Jesus, you came with grace, grace to forgive us, and grace to cause us to overcome, not to be held captive to our sins. Jesus, you came with truth, calling things straight, calling it as it is, that we are in desperate need of a Savior. It's speaking of the love of a Father. Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd move in our midst now. Lord, where we are living a subgrade life, where we are living an external life, not an internal life, where we are living for the now and, and not living for the future, where we are trying to lift ourselves up and, and not trying to serve, Lord. Lord, we repent. we're here in the presence of God and, and we're starting this week I just want to give you an opportunity if you want to consecrate yourself afresh Revelation 3 verse 20 it says behold I stand at the door and knock and that's Jesus talking to the church I'm not going to ask you to come forward I'm not going to ask you to make a speech but if this word is spoken to you and you want to say, Lord, more, deeper, let your word come in. Let the fullness of the gospel come into my life. I surrender. Then and just stand to your feet. If there's parts of your life that you've kept away from him and today you're saying, Lord, come in. And just stand to your feet now. Thank you, Jesus. Between you and the Lord. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you for your mercy, Lord God. Just give a few more moments. There's parts of your life and heart that you just want to say, Jesus, come into these. Come into these. The Word of God says, God gives grace to the humble, but He resists the proud. You're not standing for me, you're standing for God. And you're just saying, Lord, come in. And because we are a disciple-making church, because we... We do this in community. If, if there are people standing around you and, and you good, just get out of your chair and just, just put your hands on them as we're going to pray for them.
Let's be Jesus to these men and women that are standing. We're going to pray together for them. Let's make sure nobody's alone. You have to move out of your chair. Thank you, Jesus. Father, thank you for the promise of Titus chapter 2. Lord, that grace comes teaching us to say no to sin and yes to godliness. And we pray grace upon grace right now. Grace and power, Lord God. Pray for a refreshing from your spirit, Lord God. Would these men and women standing would live all in for you, Lord God. Glorifying you, Lord God. Loving you with their whole heart. And serving you with their whole body, Father God. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.